No one can predict when disaster will occur, but organizations, whether government or private, can control how well they respond. That's all about risk mitigation and resilience. Thinkers at the Center for Strategic and International Studies have pondered how the federal government can help state and local governments improve resilience in what CSIS calls four connected areas, workforce, climate security, supply chains, and cybersecurity. Here with more, CSIS Senior Advisor Suzanne Spaulding. Suzanne, good to have you back. Great to be back, Tom. And we should begin by saying your contribution to this was your cyber expertise, having run CISA and having worked in the federal government on the cybersecurity side for some time. You kind of concentrated on that particular issue, correct? That's right. All right. Tell us, what are the issues at the state and local level such that the federal government could do some good there? You know, the first thing we did, and I I should note, as you did, that the report itself on resilience covers, in addition to cyber resilience, uh, there's a section on supply chain resilience, on climate change with a particular focus on an impact on energy. And then running through all of them, but also given its own section there, is workforce resilience, which is clearly a thread that pulls across all three of those and upon which their resilience depends. And as you say, I focused on the cyber resilience piece, and we had to start, all of us working on this report, by getting our arms around what is meant by resilience, because it's used so often now and often is used interchangeably with security. Um, But as you pointed out, Tom, in your introduction, resilience is really about how do you reduce the consequences when the things you've done to try to secure your network have failed and that bad actor has exploited a vulnerability and has the potential to cause some significant consequences, not just to your network, importantly, but to the functions that that network enables, right? So to your business, if you're in business, or to your mission essential functions, if you're in government. And so resilience is about what are the plans you have in place to reduce those consequences. Fair to say this first came to light in a national way when I think it was four or five years ago that Baltimore was hit with a cyber attack such that most municipal functions actually ceased. And it was a few months before they could even, you know, get building permits back going again, transfers of property, the basic functions people turn to a city to do. We're seeing this in cities and towns all across the country. And so, yes, there is a growing recognition that we spend a lot of time in cyber conversations talking about how to deter and prevent the threat, how to reduce our vulnerabilities. Those are important. We don't spend nearly enough time talking about how are we going to reduce the consequences in a world in which we know there's no 100% guarantee of security. You have to assume in your planning that that bad actor is going to get in with their malware and you're going to be in a ransomware situation. And now what are the plans and the processes and the things you have in place to be able to operate in a degraded fashion, to be able to continue to provide essential goods and services? And the federal government can play a role there in helping both within the federal government to increase its own resilience, but also to help those state, local, territorial and tribal governments and businesses. And what are some of the top line things that governments, agencies, any kind of organization serving the public needs to have in its toolbox for resilience? Yeah, so you need to have that continuity of operations planning, continuity of business planning. And that requires that you bring in not just your IT people, but your full team, your operational folks, your communications folks, 
your financial folks, your billing folks, right? All of those people who are essential to your business need to be part of that planning because they're the ones who are going to have the insights both into the consequences, but also into the ways in which you can mitigate those consequences. I often say that, you know, your IT people, as brilliant as they may be, um, really are probably in no better shape to tell you about the impact on your business or your mission essential functions of a successful cyber attack than an electrician is to tell you the impact on your business if the power goes out. We're speaking with Suzanne Spalding, Senior Advisor for Homeland Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. It sounds almost as if, in some cases, you need to keep paper backup. Yep, they need to think about analog solutions in many instances to this very technical threat that we face and risk that we face. And the federal government can help in a number of ways. Congress, first of all, can provide adequate funding for the kind of analysis that we need that, for example, the National Risk Management Center at my old shop at DHS, now called CISA, um, the work that they do to understand consequences, understand interdependencies and the prospect for cascading consequences, and which are the functions that, if disrupted, would have the greatest impact. That's essential for prioritization. We need Congress to, when it's passing something like the Infrastructure Act, to rebuild our infrastructure across this country and update and upgrade our infrastructure, to provide the funding needed to build in resilience. We talk about secure by design. We should be thinking about resilience by design as well. So those are things that the government can do. We can provide, CISA can provide templates for that planning. Who needs to be involved? Here's the checklist. Here's how you do that continuity of operation planning. And sector-specific agencies can do the same and provide analysis on understanding consequences. And one of the connected factors in the report was the supply chain. And increasingly, cybersecurity is a function of supply chain security. Fair to say? Absolutely. And the supply chain section is outstanding. Breaks down what are the various categories of threats to the supply chain, uh, which is a great analytic tool for trying to get your arms around it. And then some very interesting practical suggestions for how we might build greater resilience in the supply chain, including things like having digital twins as a kind of backup for a supply chain disruption, and even something called a digital seed bank. And that is what exactly? Well, if you think about the traditional concept of a seed bank, if plants become extinct, right, that we've saved some seeds, to have a third party, perhaps repository, right, of critical digital components and software, et cetera, so that if that supply chain is disrupted, we can go to that seed bank and that might allow, for example, for domestic production of the needed digital tools and components. Right. So you almost need to keep those artifacts, which gets to the issue of backup and recovery itself. Is that, I wonder, becoming a bit of a lost art as people presume their cloud providers will take care of all of that? Well, and one of the key things that folks need to think about in the context of backups, I often, I work with a lot of companies and I often ask them, do you have all your data backed up? Oh yeah, we've got it backed up. Have you ever tried to use that backed up data? Well, no. And that is a challenge. That is something that that is not automatic or easy. And so companies need to not only know they have secure backup that is in fact completely separate and distinct from their network so that it is fully backed up, Two, that they have exercised using that backed up data. 
So backups are important, but you can't assume the, uh, that you've got that taken care of. Exercise it. Even if your backup is in the cloud, exercise using periodically on a regular basis. Use your backup data. Right, sure. Just to make sure the old bag of flour is still fresh, I guess, if you're going to make a cake. And this report now is extensive. It's long, and it covers those four areas. A lot of people at CSIS worked on it. What happens to it now? How do you make it not just another Washington report? Well, we did have a rollout event, and I would encourage folks who want to see the great conversations with outside experts we brought in to discuss this, go to CSIS.org. We are briefing the government, uh, elements of the government, on the report and having conversations about how it applies to the work that they're doing. And I'm out talking to businesses all the time about the importance of resilience, um, have long before this report and will continue to do so. Suzanne Spaulding is Senior Advisor for Homeland Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration, came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman with bring down to 
this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership 
that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we have been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sasulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.